Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hi, let's go ahead and get started. We don't lose any time. We have a very stimulating speaker today. Um, uh, I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which um, gives me the privilege of of uh, hosting this seminar, which has been absolutely terrific this year, and I'm very excited about today's speaker. Here at WAP, we are focused on closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. Uh, I always forget, but I'm going to learn to remember to say that um, please uh, keep in mind that today's seminar is being recorded by a podcast, but the good news is that it's going to be posted on the website. I'm going to say that at the front from now on, because then I, because I always lose track thinking about our speaker. And so, um, I'm really, we're really delighted um, to have uh, Professor Elizabeth Krugel here. She is a professor of international relations at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, a very uh, famous institute. There, we are, we're blessed to have her here as a fellow with us this year. She also at um, the Graduate Institute, she um, heads the research program on gender and global change, which is an important hub for talking about gender and international relations and development. Um, and her work, um, Professor Krugel's work, focuses on gender politics and global governance and feminism in international relations. And um, we've talked a bit ahead of time. She's got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to follow the process of she's going to present, and then we'll have an opportunity for uh, Q&A. So please uh, join me in welcoming. Thank you for this introduction, Hannah, and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to present my ongoing research. This is actually work I'm uh, doing here currently uh, at WAP. And so what you're getting is a glimpse of where I am right now, which is not the end and it's not the beginning, but what I really am open to is a lot of hopefully really good feedback. Uh, the title of this talk is Feminism Triumphant and Tamed, the Politics of Knowledge in Gender and Development. If I would redo the title, which was done many, many months ago, I would say The Politics of Knowledge in the World Bank, because that's really what I'm going to be talking about. There is today apparently, uh, uh, gender seems to be everywhere in particular in the economic arena. We have uh, the economists talk about womenomics, we have Nike talk about the girl effect, we have... Could you speak up a little bit? It's a little hard to understand in the back. Okay. Uh, we have the World Economic Forum taking on uh, gender issues and gender gaps as a method that needs to be attacked. We have WAP taking on gender gaps. I hadn't had that in my list yet. Uh, we have uh, uh, Coca-Cola, Unilever, Goldman Sachs, all getting into the game of addressing gender equality issues. And we have the World Bank talking about gender equality being smart economics. So apparently what has happened is that feminism has triumphed. Feminists have been asking for this to happen for many, many years, for mainstream organizations, for governments, for international organizations to take gender equality seriously and to start to do something about it. So at the same time, though, and I'm getting my slides, uh, we have 
feminists complaining, and feminists always complain, that's part of what we call uh, critique, right? Uh, so what's the complaint? The complaint is that feminism really has been co-opted into these governance institutions and into global capitalism. It's no longer critiquing it, but it's supporting the expansion of capitalism. Uh, it uh, supports existing power relations. Feminism has been neoliberalized. We're, calling about, we're talking about neoliberalized feminism, free market feminism, transnational business feminism. There's all kinds of literature coming up around that. Uh, Nancy Fraser has suggested that feminism has spawned what she calls a neoliberal bastard, uh, a strange shadowy version of itself, an uncanny double that it can neither simply embrace nor wholly disavow. So that's my starting point. And my starting point is really to say that if I paint, and I paint this very extreme, and I put people in boxes, and people always think much more complicated than when somebody presents their work. But in a sense, I think both of these arguments are actually wrong. They're both wrong because, on the one hand, I think that those who uh, celebrate feminism as having triumphed naively disregard that, uh, that any governance project is embedded in power relations. And so when we put feminism into governance institutions, it should not surprise us that there is a power politics going on. It also is naive, I think, on the part of feminists who decry these, because I think they have a, a, a vision uh, of uh, some kind of a pure feminism that has existed in the past. Uh, feminism has always historically embedded in the United States. It's always been predominantly liberal maybe not in other countries, but it has been. So in a sense, saying, well, this is not the right lib uh, feminism any longer is actually naive. So I could just go f stop here you know, and say, I mean, this is all matters of ideology and let's forget about it. But I think what the interesting part about uh, looking at this issue is, is to actually in interrogate it empirically. And that's what I'm trying to do in this project of looking inside uh, development organizations and see how does uh, this politics of knowledge, what actually does it do, what does it produce? And so uh, my research question then is, what happens when feminist ideas um, enter international governance discourses? And I'm going to do that uh, using the example of the World Bank, I'm taking a Foucauldian approach to this, which is I'm actually suggesting that feminist knowledge within governance institutions becomes expertise, and expertise is a particular form of knowledge. Expertise needs to take the shape of being able to define problems and being able to suggest solutions to those problems. That's what experts are supposed to be doing. So they can do that and they gain legitimacy by virtue of their posture of neutrality, by virtue of taking a posture of saying we are objective, we are using data. We, we do that all the time, I'm doing that also. Web does it, I know. Uh, we, we talk about evidence-based uh, policy research and things of that nature. But that's a starting point. Uh, 
but I think it's necessary to realize that those kinds of politics of knowledge are not politically not neutral. That once knowledge becomes an instrument of government, it becomes embedded in particular governance projects. Uh, and of course, uh, expertise also participates in uh, politics by virtue of creating categories, by virtue of defining, by virtue of creating and generating identities. Uh, so that, that's the kind of politics I will be focusing on. Just to get a, a little sense of what I mean when I say feminist ideas. Again, this is a big simplification. But what I'm interested in in this project with the World Bank is particularly the kind of ideas that have been known as the gender and development discourse. And they can be very, in a very simplified fashion, that discourse can be descri um, described as proposing mm -hmm. that uh, gender is a structuring principle of development, that it is gender relations that we need to look at. So gender does not mean women. Uh, gender also doesn't mean men and women in this particular conceptualization, but gender points us towards, towards looking at the relationship between men and women, and those are power relationships. Uh, and gender in development knowledge suggests that you should not, therefore, and you cannot have neutral policies that work the same way for everybody because the world and the economy is structured in a gendered fashion, you actually need to have interventions that keep in mind uh, what the differential impacts are on women and men of different interventions. And this is, of course, precisely those, those of you who are a little more familiar with, uh, with this work, uh, the suggestion that we need to mainstream gender, that we need to do gender mainstreaming, that we need to mainstream gender into all policy arenas. Um, What's the political context I'm talking about? The political context I'm talking about, uh, I think, in the contemporary era, uh, is neoliberalism. Now, neoliberalism is one of those terms that has become the big hammer that explains everything. Uh, so I think it's useful to just uh, uh, tease out the different dimensions of uh, the way in which people talk about neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, on the one hand, is a doctrine. It's a doctrine that uh, puts at the center the belief uh, that markets should be structuring uh, are the ideal tool for structuring our societies and our economies. Um, second, um, neoliberalism also is a political program. It's a political program that was very dominant in the 1980s under uh, Ronald Reagan, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. In the World Bank, it appeared as structural adjustment policies, and as such, it favored deregulation, privatization, liberalization of trade and finance. For the most part, neoliberalism as a political program has actually been uh, criticized very heavily, and, and uh, there you find very few people actually who really propose a pure form uh, of neoliberalism in terms of programming. Uh, more importantly, perhaps, uh, neoliberalism also uh, is an ethos of government. And what I mean by that, it is, a, is an attitude uh, which leads us to think that we can uh, govern through incentives, govern, uh, use the market mechanism uh, actually in order to incentivize people to do all kinds of things 
in the process there's a creation of uh, particular forms of, of subjectivities people become entrepreneurs of themselves the idea is that we um, build up our own human capital and in that way conduct ourselves in the world in a fashion uh, in which uh, which responds to various incentives that government sets and I think this uh, particular aspect of neoliberalism is actually one of the the things that we really have inherited and there are uh, it's part of the common sense of our times, it seems to me. Um, all right, so what is it that I actually uh, did and what I'm in the process of doing? I have, con I have collected a, a bunch of materials uh, from the World Bank, uh, and I'm going through this very slow effort of inductively coding these materials. Um, I start the materials in 2001, which is uh, the publication of, the, of a report called Engendering Development, which in my mind marked the time when the uh, bank seriously started to think about integrating uh, gender equality issues into economic governance as opposed to um, education policy and health policy, which is where much of the effort was focused before that. As I'm going through my interpretation now, I, I'm, I'm looking at three dimensions. Uh, first, I'm going to uh, look at the way in which feminist ideas have been integrated into neoliberal discourse, the way in which uh, they have been instrumentalized for neoliberal discourse, uh, the feminist critique. I will then, in a second step, look at slippages, at frictions, at contradictions, at subversions, that all seems to me have to happen when you bring these types of discourses that actually don't fit together very well to begin with, when you bring them together. And then uh, finally, I'm looking at silences, uh, at ignorances, and here I'm following uh, Eve Kozowski's um, said, which is a suggestion in ep epistemolo epistemology of the classic, uh, a book where she, where she suggests that silences in hegemonic knowledge are an enactment of what she calls the privilege of unknowing. In other words, hegemonic knowledges um, can keep certain things in the closet and it's okay they get away with it, right? Um, all right. Let me start with integrations or co-optations. And here I'm, I'm starting with the business case. The business case, of course, is not something that only the World Bank makes for gender equality. Any international organization uh, that has not been set up for the purpose of promoting gender equality but has another core mission finds itself constrained to make the business case as to why they should be looking at gender equality. So, so any most international organizations do these do this. Um, so this is not unusual. Uh, the bank's business case uh, specifically is linked to its core mission, which is poverty alleviation, and which it, of course, ties to uh, growth and efficiency in the particular form of poverty alleviation that the bank pursues. Um, today, the bank actually invariably starts any publication by first saying gender equality is a development goal in its own right. Uh, so they have heard the critique that I'm just giving you. 
they then go on and say, but it's also smart economics, and then they, the publication focuses on smart economics. Uh, um, in this particular quote, which is from the uh, Gender Action Plan, uh, we are, uh, let me just read this. I know it's a longish, ugly slide, so let me just talk you through it. Um, gains in women's economic opportunities lag behind those in women's capabilities. This is inefficient. So the issue is efficiency. Since increased women's labor force participation and earnings are associated with reduced poverty and faster growth. So our goal is poverty alleviation growth. Women will benefit from their economic empowerment. So it's a win-win. Right? It's going to be good for women also. But so too will men, children, and society as a whole. Uh, women's lack of economic empowerment, on the other hand, not only imperils growth and poverty reduction, there they are again, but also has a host of other negative impacts, including less favorable education and health outcomes for children and more rapid spread of HIV, HIV AIDS. So there are all these other goals that the bank uh, needs to pursue and that it is pursuing by saying we can get at all of this if we look at gender inequality. So let me uh, make a few comments on that. To begin with, if I juxtapose this with the gender and development approach, one of the striking things is that the bank just reverses the logic here. I mean, the gender and development people have been saying for a long time, uh, modernization development is, is bad for women, has hurt women. No, it's not bad for women, but has hurt women, right? So, so women, uh, uh, I don't know, have been cheated out of land, women have... Uh, uh, technology gets introduced and women lo lose jobs on the farms I and mean, this is Esther Bostrop's work and, and what has continued on that structural adjustment has hurt women, right? The bank has never bought that, right? Has never, has never really uh, latched onto that, has always questioned it. But essentially what they're doing here is they're saying, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, that's not the conversation we're going to have it anymore. Let's reverse the argument. Gender equality is good for development. So now the terms of the discourse are shifted entirely. Uh, so by reversing the logic, uh, th this gets kind of defanged, that whole uh, debate. Now, there's another politics to the case. The first uh, problem there is, of course, that, that there's a symbolic message that is being sent when we say, well, gender equality is secondary to virtually everything else. Right? And, uh, uh, and, and I find that problematic in itself. Um, but maybe, you know, this sort of outweighs the, the benefits to be made, to be had from the business case. Uh, a second issue I think to concer be concerned about, and this is uh, Esther Duflo suggested that it's actually really risky to make that kind of an argument. She said, well, what if it's actually not true? And uh, here, going through bank literature, while on the surface the slogan is gender equality is smart economics, uh, and the bank has put a lot of money into making that case in terms of funding research. The research actually is not all that straightforward. No? Uh, let me give you a few quotes. One from a working paper in 2007. Although micro-level effects of gender equality on individual productivity and human development outcomes have been well documented and have important ramifications for aggregate economic performance, establishing the empirical relationship between gender equality 
and poverty reduction and growth at the macro level has proven to be more challenging. Or from another publication uh, in a book on macroeconomics and gender in 2011, the results from the empirical studies fall into three categories. A number of studies show a positive relationship between gender equality and economic growth, suggesting a win-win scenario. Improving gender equality <coughs> improves growth and vice versa. <coughs> At the other end of the spectrum are studies that posit a positive relationship between, the, between gender inequality <coughs> and economic growth, a lose-win scenario. In between are studies that examine facets of gender discrimination that act as a break on economic growth. Once these problems, these problems are remedied, economic growth ensues. ensues. <coughs> um, so clearly, I mean, this is, once you look into the research being done at the bank, you find what you find in any other research arena, which is that people have all kinds of different findings about, uh, about these issues, and, um, and the issue becomes a lot more complex. Now, the third, uh, the third uh, item that I want to point to here with regard to the politics of the business case is to uh, suggest that uh, it also is pernicious in the sense that it actually narrows our imagination. It, it narr narrows the kind of imagination that we can put to feminist politics. In particular, have pe people have talked about how issues of reproduction uh, care and care labor and, and policies of child care uh, have, are often very marginal to what uh, is being talked about when presumably they are quite central in, in feminist politics, but they um, are very rarely addressed in World Bank uh, publications, that there's heteronormative con commitments to the kind of policies that are being implemented, to the kind of talk that is perpetuated where gender is always women and men, uh, that um, policies that um, movements pursue, such as rape prevention, for example, is, is entirely outside the picture of what uh, will bring about gender equality in this particular discourse. All right, so here the business case seems to me provides evidence for integration. Um, I want to talk about problem definition a little bit next, uh, which I think also uh, points us towards more of an integration or cooptation of feminist ideas into World Bank uh, discourse. Uh, What's the problem? Now, um, experts need to define what the problem is. And Carol Bucky goes so far uh, to say that much of the policy process is actually about problem definition. That much of, uh, and, and in many instances, uh, the problem definition is, of course, intensely linked or entirely, very tightly linked to solutions. Uh, and in many instances, solutions may even precede the problem. Uh, arguably, that's the case with neoliberalism, where we know the market is the solution. So therefore, we need to kind of identify the problem that um, goes with that particular solution. Now, in, in my codings, not surprisingly, the problem definition in bank documents is gender inequality, which is not rocket science. Um, you know, we hardly ever think about that term. We use it all the time. 
the prescription in gender mainstreaming is, the goal should be um, uh, the elimination of gender inequality. Uh, it's the language we use. But that's not really the only problem definition that's out there. If you go into feminist history, uh, history of feminist thought, there's talk about women's oppression, there's talk about uh, gender subordination, there's talk about patriarchy, there's talk about gender injustice. Uh, if you look at post-structuralist feminists, they talk about the productivity of gender. So it's different ways in which this issue could be framed. Along with uh, problem definitions go a certain understanding of the causes of the problem. So the, the causes of the problem then become discrimination, which is often measured in gaps and disparities. But there are also, and this is something that surprised me a little bit how prevalent that was in the documents, um, I, I ended up with a number of codes that were, were all about lack of, lack of, lack of, lack of. So there, were, there was a lack of access to credit, a lack of jobs, a lack of land, a lack of assets, a lack of networks, and all of that then ends up to, uh, adds up to a lack of economic opportunities. Yeah. So women somehow lack all these things. Yeah. The, the, the definition goes a, a little bit in the direction of, of um, certain deficiencies being, being identified, and then of course, and this is again expertise doing its work, uh, once you have identified deficiency, deficiencies, governments know they have to intervene and they need to rectify somehow these lacks through empowerment and, uh, and those things uh, that, we, uh, that we talk about in, in development discourse. Um, okay, now, the lack of economic opportunity, I think, is something that is important to talk about here in particular, because once economic opportunity is identified as the main lack, and it, it, is, it is the recurring lack, everything usually kind of ends up being funneled towards uh, the language of economic opportunity, essentially what is made central here then again is the market. It's the opportunity to participate in the market. And in essence, there's underlying this, a definition of gender inequality as meaning economic opportunities, which gets us back to the uh, feminist discussions about should we worry about opportunities or outcomes. A and the bank is having this discussion actually going on internally, which I found uh, really interesting. And this is kind of, in a way, I'm starting to talk about slippages here. This is, this is where the, the first slippage um, uh, occurs. There's on the one hand the 2001 Engendering Development Report, which very explicitly says, we shall stop short of defining gender equality as equality of outcomes for two reasons. First, different cultures and so societies can follow different paths in their pursuit of gender equality. Second, uh, equality implies that women and men are free to choose different or similar roles and different or similar outcomes in accordance with their preferences and goals. I should have put that up there. It's a complicated quote. But, but let me just walk you through that. So the first argument is, um, uh, well, there's different cultures in society, and, uh, and they may have different paths to gender equality. Um, I actually don't find this a logical argument. 
because that actually would suggest that they should be looking at outcomes rather than at the path, the path which is uh, economic opportunities. The second argument is a little more interesting, right? So equality implies that women and men are free to choose different or similar roles or different and similar outcomes in accordance with their preferences and goals. So the, the assumption here is under conditions of equal opportunity, if you still have unequal outcomes, it's because people wanted it. It was a matter of preferences. It was a matter of, uh, uh, of goals. What's the problem with that? I mean, something seems wrong with that. Uh, the problem, I think, is that they have no idea or that they had no way in this argument to account for women's difference. In the more recent World Development Report, these w women's difference is, is, is recognized. And they're picking up on some of, of the literature on, uh, uh, on differences uh, in women's uh, risk aversion, differences in social preferences, differences in attitudes about competition that I think have come up in the, in the economic literature. And they're saying, well, well, if those differences really exist, then you know, we can't really just talk about equality of opportunities. Moreover, and there's some sociologists in those gender units in the, uh, in the bank, and they're saying, you know, actually it's these outcomes and the difference in power relations that also produce different preferences. So, um, you know, if you have no power, if you uh, live in a situation where uh, you're very deprived, it really actually affects the way in which you imagine what you could want. This is, this is very new. This is very different from any of the ideas of, of kind of a abstract, uh, rationally choosing individual conducting himself uh, in the market. So there's a real, real uh, a slippages happening here. And uh, the World Development Report very specifically then ends uh, this argument saying, despite this debate about whether equality means opportunities or outcomes, it is difficult in practice to measure opportunities separately from outcomes. Indeed, equality of opportunities and equality of outcomes are tightly linked in theory and in measurement. So let's do away with this. Hmm? All right, let me talk about a few more slippages. This was all right. Can I ask you a question yeah. about why you call it slippage? Meaning, would you argue that an organization has to be uh, coherent over time? Or would it be permissible to say this is an evolution? Yeah. In the World Bank, that actually is totally correlated with the evolution of economic theory, um, mm -hmm. you know, in those 10 years. Yeah. Uh, so for me, this is not particularly surprising that you find a difference, you know, 10 mm -hmm. years later. So that's why I'm asking, why is it a slippage? Mm -hmm. uh, couldn't we allow organizations to learn mm -hmm. and do things differently? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm, uh, what I'm presenting to you here is the discursive argument. So I'm, I'm approaching this through uh, an analysis of two types of discourses, which I imagine as, as a relatively, or introduced as relatively static. So the assumption here is, okay, we have a strong neoliberal commitments, which you still have in the, uh, in the bank, in, in kind of, not, not in the gender corner, but, you know, in the, uh, in the 
office of the of the head economist and so on. I mean that that's really what dominates, and so so I'm imagining this. It's a portrayal, right, of what is happening with a particular discourse. Um, a very different way of approaching this would be saying, let's use an organizational theory, and let's see what happens in terms of organizational processes. I haven't done that work, so that's why you hear what what you hear here. And and I'd be interested actually in talking more with you about that, start to conceptualize that also, because to me that then becomes a matter of mechanisms. Okay, so slippage. <laughs> I'll call it that. Slippage number one uh, focuses around institutions. The bank has uh, actually quite for some time been interested in institutions now, in particular in the context of the good governance uh, agenda, um, which, which actually came up in the context of neoliberal ideas. So n the neoliberal good governance agenda entailed that one would create efficient markets and you needed to have the right institutions place in place in order to create efficient markets. Critics have called this a way for uh, constitutionalizing the rights of capital, but it seems to me that the focus on institutions opened up uh, all kinds of other areas that one could think about when one talks about institutions, and some people indeed have suggested that uh, focusing on human rights is an element of good governance. Uh, the, the Gender Action Plan is, is very uh, specific on that. Uh, they say we should not just be creating efficient markets, we need to be creating equitable markets. It's markets that work for women is what we want to create. And so as a result, and we had uh, Sarah Iqbal here, uh, a few uh, weeks ago, uh, the, the project on women, business, and the law is precisely in this area. What is really surprising, seems to me, about what uh, the women are doing in this area, and they're, they're all women in that <laughs> office, uh, is, is that they do not just focus on formal institutions, but they also have branched out in all kinds of ways. So it's, it's to begin with not just about instituting good markets in the narrow sense through business registration law, labor law, and so on, but in order to have a functioning equitable market, you now also need to have equitable family laws, equitable inheritance laws. You, you extend this logic into the private sphere that typically has been seen as uh, uh, is, is quite a far away from uh, from markets, including laws against domestic violence and laws on sexual harassment, which I think is really uh, quite subversive to, to talk about it in this way. And, and then furthermore, um, there is talk about informal institutions, gender roles, beliefs, social norms, and networks, although I have to say that, uh, that the kinds of uh, references I see to that, the bank is very nervous about intervening in this area as they probably shouldn't. I think that's probably good that they're nervous about that. Um, and the argument they're making is, is that, well, once you get the formal institutions changed and once you have uh, the, the economic opportunities in place, it's actually surprising how fast these informal institutions are changing, um, which I think is an interesting argument, and I would like to see the empirics of that. But. Uh, it's a, a research agenda, I think, actually, really about how, how does change happen, theories of change. 
Okay, so institutions, serious slippages here. Uh, endowments. This is another area that surprised me a little bit. Uh, the uh, Amartya Sen's capabilities approach is very often associated as something that UNDP does, whereas the World Bank does neoliberal economics. Well, that's certainly not the case when the bank talks about gender issues. It has very firmly um, embraced in that context the capabilities approach. Um, it's about making it possible for women to participate in markets, and they're thinking there, of, again, not as the abstract, rational man participating in market or human being, which is you know, kind of the same thing mm -hmm. in, in the bank um, uh, uh, lingo. Uh, but they actually really think of human beings as being embodied, as having endowments, as coming with with ha having different endowments, and I think that's the important thing, as having uh, different resources, as having different, um, are, are being healthy in different ways, having different uh, different kinds of education. And again, um, this matters right, because it matters for the kind of prescriptions you come up with. And prescriptions that are in the world development, some of the prescriptions are really surprising. You know, there's, there's a talk about investment, more investment into health and into clean water and so on. Uh, so, so there is kind of a, a little bit of a stepping back from that logic uh, uh, that uh, drove uh, structural adjustment policies, which was all about let the market figure this out and having pri private uh, provision of these public goods. They, they are really stepping back there and are calling on state uh, programs, which are costly, to uh, provide some of these things. Then uh, finally... And the, the last uh, thing I want to talk about, and I'm, I'm a little nervous talking talking about that because I haven't wrapped my mind entirely around what what's going on here. There is recently in the bank uh, a, a new term that has popped up. It's the term agency, and it's a little unclear what that actually is, even though there's books about it. There's at least two books about it. It appears in the World Development Report. And there, there seems to be an internal discussion going on from what I can gather. Uh, so you have on the one hand the people that try to link agency, make it kind of akin to choice. Uh, it's, it's something that you do in the market. So this is a, a, a preface uh, where one of the bank VPs uh, is invited to comment and uh, I forget whether it was a he or she says uh, the power uh, by agencies, the power and opportunity to take risks, seize opportunities, and shape one's lives. So we have it latched back to markets and economic opportunities. But when you listen to the gender experts talking, and the second quote here is one from my, one of my fellow fellows here, uh, Jenny Klugman, it's the capacity to make decisions about one's own life and act on them to achieve a desired outcome free of violence, retribution, or fear. There's absolutely nothing about economic opportunity in this particular quote. It's just about, it's about power, right? It's about being empowered, being powerful. Uh, and then there's another gender expert's uh, definition, and, and she actually suggests this is the power for self-definition. And here what she actually is uh, uh, referring to is that there's, there's got to be an element of 
critique in there. One has to be able to reflect on one's own life because, and this is the example she provides, uh, if a woman uh, says that it's right for her husband to beat her if she burns the food or whatever, um, then I don't call that agency, basically. Agency requires that you can, that they have the, the power to reflect on those relationships and be able to critique them. And, you know, there is things about collective organization and supporting collective organization, and all of these ideas start to pop up in these books, really, really far removed from the narrow framing uh, of gender equality as equal opportunity. Now, silences. Macroeconomics. Macroeconomics is a taboo subject for gender. Um, you know, there we had uh, that whole contestation as to whether, on, on the one hand, you know, that the argument is, 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 is gender equality is good for growth, uh, but um, it really, gender expertise remains at the level of microeconomics. Uh, in the World Development Report and in other publications, modernization is not questioned, growth is not questioned, um, globalization is not questioned. Uh, the Gender Action Plan puts it as follows. Sound macroeconomic policy, responsive governance, a favorable business climate, and the openness and accountability of institutions also affect outcomes for women and men but they mostly operate beyond the influence of this action plan. There's, the bank does not embrace uh, the feminist critiques of macroeconomics, of ac macroeconomic biases. Um, instead, what you actually often find there in the literature also is a reversal of logics. Uh, in the book of macroeconomi on macroeconomics and gender, they do review that literature, the, the feminist critique of macroeconomics, uh, but then they, most of the book actually reverses the logic again. They say, well, you know, people are saying structural adjustment is bad for women, uh, but then it goes on to say, well, let's see how does, how do gender dynamics at the household level affect savings, affect consumption, affect investment, and so on. So again, um, this is a, a, an area that is apparently entirely off limits. Now, let me conclude. So what happens to feminist ideas when they enter neoliberal development discourse? Uh, the answers I know ahead of time, but I hope I've also shown to you convincingly that there is uh, integration and there is uh, instrumentalization. Uh, that there's slippages, uh, but there's also silences. Now, what the, is there? Is there something to be taken away from that? Right, uh, going back to this uh, argument between feminism triumphed or feminism tamed, uh, it seems to me uh, that gender mainstreaming, the idea of integrating gender into development institutions, has been both a failure and a success. It can be both. Um, I think we need to recognize that the world doesn't doesn't uh, change uh, because of our designs necessarily, but perhaps uh, that history gets its impetus from the knowledges and uh, powers we participate in validating. This is uh, uh, 
uh, a different way of thinking about change, right? Assuming that the discourses are out there and we can choose to participate in not just one or the other, but uh, participate in them in various ways. And uh, I think uh, as a final uh, recommendation, I guess it would leave me with uh, recalling how important it is to remain critical, how important it is to have movements involved in many of these government projects and have uh, critical voices on the outside. Thank you very much. And I'll be happy to take critiques, questions, suggestions. So I have a question about yeah. goes back to the slippages or, and, and the diversity of also um, feminist logics, right? So could, could one argue that, um, uh, well, two, well, just a couple thoughts, but one, I'll just start with, could, could, could one argue, like going back to Iris was kind of talking about, you know, the World Bank is taking, those, the changes there, well, one could argue that, the, that some of the changes that you were describing as um, slippages in in the from the neoliberal model, um, were could, might be traced by a separate path simply through development. So rather than actually as a leaking of feminist thought into mm -hmm. economics, like some of it could mm -hmm. just be explained, frankly, by developments in economic theory. You know, in mm -hmm. that in the sort of community of economists that are that evolutions or generations in the theory of economists in, in mm -hmm. the in the uh, community of economists who sort of define neo the sort of neoliberal philosophy theory yep. originally. So that, that that's one possibility. But so along the lines of these, like what are the paths by which these kind of slippages or logics are occurring? And, and again, I wonder like if you go back to the diversity of logics within feminist theory, I mean, is there a chance that it's just, it's really liberal feminists who are, who are influencing this discourse as opposed to you know, more critical mm -hmm. theorists? Mm -hmm. And that that's part of what you're seeing and that, that, that the disconnect is really, is that, is that they're, they're just selecting within the community of feminists those that make the most sense to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think that's entirely correct. Okay. Uh, the, the other issue on, uh, you know, what are, what are the paths in which this happens, that's, that's a much more tricky issue. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, can you, you know, wh where do you put the causality? I mean, one of the problems there is actually that the bank has become so big in terms of research is this on development economics that it's basically the largest development economics department in the world. I mean, there's a huge amount of money that goes in there, and there's, of course, development economists move back and forth, um, and, and they entirely have the conversation going on. So the bank, in a sense, is there's the internal, uh, external is very difficult to distinguish on, on this. Um, I mean, I'd be I'd be really interested in talking more about the institutional processes with both of you. Actually, that's uh, something you have um, talked about I mean, more extensively. Not, my comment is not going to be about institutional processes, but uh, you know, a way for you maybe to look at other evidence. Is this just happening in the gender domain mm -hmm. in the World Bank, or in other domains as well? So again, my gut instinct tells. So, for example, uh, the next human development report is going to focus on the, uh, behavioral economics, um, which has nothing. Oh, really? Or very little to do with. Um, neoliberal um, thought and I mean, the two big revolutions if I may call them that happened in econ in the last 10 years were behavioral and empirical 
So data now drives everything. And often, this is not just experiments, but experiments play an important role, but also big data, um, different ways of analyzing data. And you know, in my naive perception of comparing the two reports, and I also mm -hmm. liked uh, 2012 much, much better than the 2001, mm -hmm. um, is that that reflects kind of that evolution in the bank more generally. Now it might have, you know, might be other things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can trace that, right? That's very hard. Mm -hmm. It's also different authors. Mm -hmm. And I happen to know both groups of authors. They're very, very different people, trained right. at different places. Right. Um, but, right. but that's kind of my best gut feeling. But I wanted to make another uh, yeah. comment or question, and that's a bit more pragmatic. Um, I think for economists, you know, including myself, um, we're that distinction between equality and efficiency is kind of really huge. And not because of feminist theory reasons, but also for pragmatic reasons. Because kind of the interventions that we have to think about to decrease gender inequality, to go with that term, are very, very different, depending on whether I think it's a zero-sum game. And everything I win is some man's loss. Mm -hmm. Is a very different way of, kind of analyzing um, the problem, but also intervening in the problem, um, kind of trying uh, compared to there are you know efficiency gains to be had. Um, I think that's why you see so much actually so much action um, in that space of really trying to see is there a business case and when is there one and when isn't there one, and <laughs> because it will affect kind of the policy recommendations that people like I or other economists would give. Um, so that's not a, a right. No, 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 no on why, why it's so important for economists, that question is so, so critical. But can, can economists actually make the equality argument? I mean, is it, what do, you, mean do you have the instruments to uh, say that equitable institutions do, do, do you not in the end always have to have the, your argument, your argument always goes back to efficiency, right? I mean, no, because no, no, if the market no. is the, star, the no, starting wage, point. Wage inequality is a big, I mean, inequality, particularly the Kennedy School, of course, is a huge theme. Um, right. Many, many economists in social policy here work only on inequality, not on efficiency at all. Um, so I think, you know, I think take the wage, the gender wage gap. Mm -hmm. right? That's all about inequality. It has, I mean, one could then mm -hmm. argue, extend, maybe you can make an extension that it might also have efficiency consequences, but that's really only about inequality. And mm -hmm. I think many economists have inequality as they're dependent variable. I mean, our current dean, that's all he did. So, so yes, there, there mm -hmm. is very strong school, I think, which just focuses on inequality and decreasing inequality. Mm -hmm. And I think then that comes into play in where theory ends and then how it's going to be used. Economists can bow to the argument and can stop at saying it would make it more equal. But if you want to be able to sell that in a way that it will have well, uptake, right. what gets sold, in essence, and therefore what gets uptake, is going to be highly contingent upon where stakeholders in different arenas can sense value that's already aligned. Right. And since virtually virtually all policy is going to end up needing to be turned into dollars and cents, because yeah. everything has a budget yeah. attached to it, and that's where the rubber meets the road with policy, regardless of just what the discourse is, the pressures which are required for uptake push it into an efficiency lens if you wanted to go from pure to outcome? It, that, well, in a sense, that's exactly my argument, yeah. right? I mean, that why is it that 
when economists apparently also make the pure equality argument that that is not good enough, right? That you have to turn it into this dollar and cent. Because otherwise it's just an argument of thought, right? No, there is a value in equality, no? Or is there only value the, in... Uh, because the economists or WAP or feminists generally, it is difficult to construct without resources. Right? Yes. So when feminists have to move from the intellectual role of constructing what the world should look like to building coalitions to create what the world should look like, even people who are equally invested in the pure equality argument, you have to put a price tag. And since most of the conversations, for example, are, that take place here and as an extension of here, that price tag is going to end up being paid by business or being paid by government. Both are resource constrained. So then, you see what I'm saying? I, I see entirely what I'm you're not saying. I'm but, right. but, <laughs> but I'm highly aware of it. But it seems to me it's also pernicious that in those calculations we are making that we can't put value on anything but uh, or that we can't, can't that we have to measure everything, every value, which we know there's many values, that we have to translate all those values into monetary values. And yeah. I, I don't mean to imply that. I, I know that's not what yeah, you mean. That, that's, right. that's not right. So there's another argument there. It seems to me that the slippages that you refer to, which are really interesting, actually go quite against this argument, right? So, so it's almost as if, and this goes back to the organizational question, it's almost as if the organization takes a stance, that, and the, the stance is around a neoliberal um, sort of view of the world, and yet the folks in I mean, you talk about, we have sociologists here, we have women here, the, the folks that actually do the work, do the work that they want to do. And so the slippage seems to be a mm -hmm. um, very common organizational slippage. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to Iris's point, that you may want to compare this to other things that the bank is doing. There's likely across every agenda that you have, <laughs> mm -hmm. or every agenda right. item that you have, a lot of slippage between the bank's stance on it and the reports that go out and the practices in place, because the practices in place are carried out by people who may or may not um, have the same set of values. And, yeah. and, I, and mean, I don't think that's I, necessarily about feminism. Right. Well, I, I think, no, it's not actually. And uh, it's surprising how few people who do uh, gender expertise actually self-identify as feminists, which uh, doesn't go, doesn't go together at all. Um, what I'm also asking myself, I think there there's different reports have different status. So, so when there is a working paper, it has a different status than the World Development Report. Sure. The World Development Report has gone through massive vetting because it really is quoted then as the World Bank says, as opposed to some World Bank researchers says. Uh, and so I think that difference is really quite crucial. Uh, the other part is, yes, to what extent is that actually being mainstreamed into country assistance strategies or into what the bank is doing in terms of when it 
uh, interacts with clients. That's that's another element in it. I think a logic, the idea of comparison is quite interesting, and I think my my inclination would be to actually do it around uh, environmental politics uh, because I think that's comparable. It's probably a little more. Uh, more salient and there's more money behind it now than behind the gender issue but I think in terms of it being something that kind of disrupts a neoliberal framework it has a similar status so a few comments that I have I was just writing many of them here but so so something on perhaps on the discursive aspect and then on the constructive aspect of the argument. Um, so first, um, so it's a discourse to whom? I mean, I was missing like perhaps in, in the entire point. I mean, like who are the stakeholders and the audience? And this, this doesn't just help explaining why it is the way it is. And um, so as I put it here, I mean, um, so gender, Gender inclusion is usually instrumentalized for the overarching goals. That's a bit of the argument that we have there. And okay, it's not like gender equality per se, but gender equality because it's so A, B, and C. And um, I mean, at least of part of what we understand as neoliberalism is um, this understanding, okay, we're gonna solve what we can solve and the other things will get solved automatically or they will get prioritized automatically. It's a bit of how we see it. So. Isn't this like even putting gender there at least a way of an attempt of trying to to get around it? I mean, okay, fine, we know that this is in place, so can we get around it? And then like it goes further in the sense that and then that's the constructive part. I mean I'm not like being very clear, but um, so this is what the World Bank puts out there. And this in a way helps explaining or helps forming the way we are gonna see gender equality further, right? So this is kind of the, the mindset that we have in mind now when we think of gender equality, and these are the options that we have, like in global governance. So like, <coughs> so like how we build from that? Because in a way, like this helps building what will come next. Even the critique is a bit slightly built by what is put out there. I mean, like what are the actual avenues for doing it differently? considering that we have to target these audiences that are not willing necessarily to hear about gender because they're not necessarily interested about gender to start with. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure that I understood everything. I we have to have a conversation, it, right? <laughs> but but just one comment on, on the audience issue. I mean, if you're, if you're uh, a pure Foucauldian, the audience is kind of irrelevant mm -hmm. because the discourse is out there and it does its thing and it invokes you whether you want to n or not and you become its, uh, its mouth, right? So it talks through you. Uh, and it, it pops up in all kinds of corners. I mean, so we think we're talking to a particular audience, but guess what? There's all kinds of other people who are reading it too. And, and had a wider audience, and, and that's why I separated like stakeholders and a wider audience. Yes, because of course, like it gets caught up by many other people who are not the intended. Like, exactly, audience. and and the argument then is precisely, mm. and I think you said that also. That's your presumption also. I mean, that basically c creates path dependencies. Is that how you would say it? Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean it. 
uh, structures, the solutions that become imaginable uh, in the aftermath. about the business case and about sort of the gender and development language used around gender equality as sort of the most pragmatic approach from a feminist perspective, right? Like, get what you can. And in a more crude way, I think of it as sort of the feminist deal with the neoliberal devil, right? Where we get what we can. They put women on things. They say it matters. They do certain things that alleviate certain problems for certain people. But I think what none of us are raising here is sort of what's lost, right? Because while there was never a pure moment in feminism, there was in the past and continues to be large, robust strains of feminism that argue for universal economic justice, right? Every person out of poverty, as opposed to every person with the chance to apply for a low-wage job. Right. And when we... (laughs) When we agree, when we allow sort of neoliberal discourses to take up the parts of feminism that work for them, I think part of what you mean by validating is that it strengthens the legitimacy of those discourses. Yes. And I think that what we trade, that maybe we didn't mean to, and maybe we thought we'd come back for, was the opportunity to argue in a very robust way for more universal rights. As you said, with violence against women, right? The business case can't fix that, right? And, and I would. This is hypothetical, this is a hypothesis of what will happen, but if we achieve the business case, businesses are efficient, and women are able to participate, and their talents are used, I would posit that they will still go home and get beaten. And I think we should all, those of us who engage in this sort of work, it's important work. We have to fix the institutions that we have, but I think we always have to remember that we're doing what we can and not exactly what we aspire to. That's very beautifully said. I could have never done it this way. Thank you very much. There's just one caveat, and I'm 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 having second thoughts about that because, you know, the business case now includes actually fighting violence against women. Yeah, I actually have a whole piece I do on that. Yeah, and got a really nice bill without my whack hat on. um, Passed. I mean, because you can actually quantify lost wages, lost productivity. Um, right. Yeah. It's the concession so, that but we should have yeah. everyone creating as much profit as possible at all times, as exactly. opposed to a world in which everyone has a chance to live. Right. That's the point, right? Yeah. That's that's the payoff, right? And we may even address violence against women's issues as long as a certain form of economic governance continues. Carrie. Well, Danielle just blew that out of the water. Um, (laughs) And I was going to say, I wanted to talk about something similar, so I'll go to the next sort of part of that. Once organizations then have a platform using the business case and sort of have those inroads, Mm -hmm. what are some opportunities you see them that they could take advantage of to also advance this more, you know, feminist theory and feminist mm-hmm. sort of support. If they're already mm-hmm. in through that door, what else can, what would you suggest that they do in addition mm-hmm. to, to to sort of widen that, yeah. that language they're using? Um, you know, I'd like to answer that by not answering you. Um, because I think in the end, you know, when I, when I have done work that starts not from the bottom from the top, but from the bottom, 
and this is some of the work I did on, on agricultural policy in the European Union and uh, running around in East Germany in the countryside. Um, you know, people there, and those are administrators and local EU-funded projects, right? administrators there knew that they were supposed to be doing something about women. They had no idea what gender mainstreaming is or what gender means or gender relations or men and women or is it just women or whatnot. That all that arrived at that level was noise. Right? And they took that noise and they used it to argue for what in this particular community they had, uh, there was kind of a resurgence of neo-Nazis and they linked it to women leaving the countryside. There was like a pr the proportion of uh, 100 men to 90 women in the East German countryside. And so they said, our goal has to be first priority is to create jobs for women so the women stay here. And that became their priority. And so in a sense, all the institution the European Union did for them is create the noise with all the logic and thinking and theories that went into that in Brussels and whatnot, you know, and it trickled down in some fashion. But then it actually made it possible for these people to define their own needs and their own projects and what needed to happen in the community. So what I'm trying to say, I guess, in the more abstract is let's not get too obsessed about the institutions because they're just one element of this whole big picture. And more than anything, I think they need to give room to local organizations, to civil society organizations, to women's organizations, to come in and to participate in that change process that has happened. And they have to send the, the right noises, right? Not any noise will do. They have to send the right noises. But I'm not actually all that persuaded that in the end it matters all that much how right it is. I mean, all the stuff I just ran you through. <laughs> Which is a little, uh, a little depressing to think about, I guess. Yeah, I have a question about how, how this knowledge uh, comes into existence. So, uh. through the data and literature they read, but also that they don't identify as feminists themselves. Is there a feminist lobby going around? Do they have, are they in com contact with mm -hmm. feminist movements? And is there mm -hmm. also an opening for critical organizations to mm -hmm. express their concerns uh, to the mm -hmm. thing? Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I, s I think there is a real shift that has happened. I mean, we had that whole feminist literature on femocrats, exactly. right? Yeah. That uh, uh, established themselves in Australia and yeah. Europe. They're all over the place. Uh, and many of those women actually do self-identify as feminists. I think that gender has been institutionalized to such an extent that the people that I talk to, I wouldn't call them femocrats because they really were often hired because they were in the organization, you needed to run a model and they needed to plug in gender as a variable and so they got onto that and they, uh, uh, qu quite a few of the people I did in interviews said, well, I don't actually really think of myself as a gender expert even though they appeared as one of the people that provided input in the World Development Report and, uh, and produced knowledge on gender. Uh, even the people that are, you know, are in the gender office, 
uh, they would say, you know, I would never call myself a feminist in the bank. But yeah, probably I'm a feminist. It's it's just not an issue for them. They, you know, to them, I mean, the point is that I think the movement is relatively far removed from them. There are some organizations in Washington, the Women's Eye on the World, Eyes on the World Bank. There's the um, there's another project uh, I interviewed there, there, her as well. But you know, those are. There are one women shows. They're relatively small. They're small networks. The bank has made a point of doing extensive consultations all the time. So around the World Development Report, they actually had consultations around the world where they also invited feminist researchers. And there's people who have written about those consultations and about what has been taken up and what hasn't been taken up. So there is a, there's a real effort uh, to reach out and the conversation is going on. Um, between people who are self-identified feminists. But I think there's really this professionalization of gender expertise that is a totally different phenomenon, and that really becomes then, what gender becomes expertise. becomes a different thing. Uh, yes? Hi, I'm Cara Matthews. And Hi. my question is really just to follow up on the, um, you mentioned one of your colleagues said that it's really difficult to measure opportunity, or one of the scholars that you mm -hmm. And kind of bringing the whole piece and agency into it, um, what are the best sort of measures um, that are out there, barometers for opportunity? Because I think it's particularly relevant in this country where sort of, you know, that's the beacon of hope is that there's equal opportunity for everyone and really how have we measured it and how do we um, measure where we are as a country, particularly when this is not just exclusive to gender, but in this country, race relations and immigration and everything. So I think it's particularly important that we start to realize the best way to measure opportunities so mm. that we can strive to um, yeah. you know, have equal opportunities for all of us. Because I think you're absolutely right that it's really a universal access thing that we're you know, really living our optimal experience when our brothers and sisters are living out their optimal experience. And as long as we can start to build up our communities that way, start stop fragmenting, like, you know, groups, but realize we're all people. And so I think just sort of getting the best parameters yeah. and an opportunity for all of us. You're asking the wrong person. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm totally, now that I have read so much about opportunities, I'm totally confused about what that is. I thought it was the most obvious thing. But I, I don't know how you measure that. It's how do you see an opportunity when you see it? And and I think it's it's telling that basically the bank, uh, the World Development Report comes up to say, well, you really can you have to measure it through outcomes. You can measure it's it's a theoretical concept in the end. I'm glad you're nodding. That was my conclusion. No, 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 no. I agree. I mean, you agree? I think it goes back to the question that you talked about before. I mean, I. The bank's approach used to be equal access, equal rights, etc. And then if women and men choose different things, it's due to preferences, right? That has dramatically changed in the last 10 years. Um, now saying that these pre preferences are not exogenous, they're endogenous, and they're shaped by a ton of things, and if women are less self-confident or than men, that shouldn't have come across as negative. I just mean differences right. in self-confidence. Um, and differences in risk preferences, differences in lots of different things, then equal opportunity in the sense of access is almost meaningless. Mm. Not 
not completely meaningless, but also right, meaningless. Right, right, right. So if we have equal, you know, if um, we have suffrage, but if only 40% of women vote, right. then we probably have to dig deeper of right. why are women not voting? Is there something something going on there? And so the opportunity as right, defined only by rights, clearly doesn't give us the whole answer. I'm not saying rights aren't important. Yeah. I, mean, I think we shouldn't yeah, give yeah. up rights. Rights are probably the first, most important step, but then there's many, many more we have to take. And that's the behavioral revolution, right, that you refer to there for that to happen? For, for that to have happened, that's kind of the behavioral economics revolution? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a certain, it's, um, I, this has got a little bit of a uh, kind of wild suggestion, but I but just to throw it out for brainstorming. Like, you almost could, one, you could almost write this paper in the reverse. So rather than an example of how, like, critical theory, which I understand you're, you're initially arguing, you're sort of looking at how critical theory has influenced the World Bank, but I think you could almost argue the, you could almost use this in the in the inverse. It's just to say, how has the evolution of kind of economic theory um, uh, uh, approached critical theory? Let me use as an example the case of gender, <laughs> because I mean, there's yeah. a certain degree of there's there is like so like within some within so one so one thing that I my limited understanding of critical theory there is this sort of radical subjectivism within critical theory, the sort of the social construction of the reality as we experience it. And within psychology, which has been like kind of the source of this behavioral revolution, there is actually a kind of, even though they use liberal methods of discovery or experimental methods, etc., sort of make certain statistical assumptions that would be critiqued by critical theorists, they have a sort of fundamentally radical subjectivist theoretical foundation. And so what you have is this kind of radical subjectivism um, leaking into uh, economics. So, I mean, I really wonder about the extent to which you're actually just having a kind of rapprochement. And I mean, it might not even be triumphant and tamed. It may be literally that these, like, two, you know, the other is becoming Drawing. diminished. Like, it, like mm -hmm. if, if, if mm -hmm. critical theory defined itself, so I know there's a lot of discussion about the other in critical theory. You, you, you may have a diminishment of the other. If the other is, like, you know, liberal thought in essence. Yeah. You know, that that other is actually becoming more like the self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that I mean that that there's a story there and you can explore it through gender. Yeah. It's interesting. I obviously need to read more into uh, economics, I realize. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for the presentation. I I was wondering, you mentioned UNDP at some point yeah. in terms of different perspective on development. If you looked at the literature in the bank in comparison with other organizations and if the Millennium Development Goals had some shaking up on the gender. Yeah. So at some point, everybody was writing gender in it, just yeah, to make yeah, sure yeah. that everybody was on the same page. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, that's exactly what I'm going to do next month. <laughs> <laughs> as a matter of fact, originally this talk was announced as World Bank and UNDP, and I uh, yeah, snuck into Aisha's uh, <laughs> office and said, could you please take that out? I don't know. <laughs> so yes, great suggestion. <laughs> Please, um, our next session uh, is in two weeks on Thursday, November 13th, because of the holiday. Uh, I don't know why, but it's not because of the holiday. But it's um, Joe Baylor, uh, professor of mathematics education at Stanford. And the founder of UCubed is going to talk about paying the price for sugar and spice, how girls and women are kept out of mathematics and science. Some people have the best titles.